What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall not fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. For you have formed my inward parts. You have covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book they are all written, the days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men! For they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. <clears throat> Today's sermon is actually related to the series on the Lord's Prayer in that it follows up on the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And Jesus goes on to say later on in that same chapter, For if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. There the Lord clearly teaches that if you come seeking forgiveness from your Father in heaven for some sin you've committed, but yet if you refuse to repent of that sin, if you do not have godly sorrow over that sin, but simply a regret about that sin, God will not forgive you. If you do not forgive others who have sinned against you and yet who come and seek your forgiveness, repenting of their sin, if you uh, hold back in forgiving them, God says He will not forgive you as your Father, even though all of your sins have been forgiven as as uh, a uh, judge. There is no condemnation, yet your fellowship with God. God will continue to pour forth that fatherly discipline upon you until you repent and turn from that sin. That parable of the unmerciful slave in Matthew 18, just very briefly, again reminds us of the need to forgive others if we would be forgiven of God. For he was forgiven the equivalent of millions of dollars by his master, but refused to forgive a fellow slave hundreds of dollars. Beloved, God considers this to be an extremely grave sin in his sight. We find at the conclusion of that particular section in Luke chapter 6, verse 36, Jesus says, Therefore be merciful just as your Father also is merciful. At the end of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Therefore be perfect even as your Father is perfect. God would have us emulate Him. And we reveal that we are actually the children of God and we have the family characteristics or traits when we forgive as God forgives. Now many of our children, uh, can, we can look at our children and we can see both in the way in which they look and the way that they act unfortunately sometimes, the way they act, that they are our children. But God would have us to reflect that we are His children by showing mercy to those who sincerely repent, for He does so as well. But we also noted that God does not just indiscriminately forgive everyone. There is repentance required on the part of one who is broken and contrite before God, who recognizes how he has offended God. And on that basis, God will forgive. He will forgive because of that brokenness with which they come. But then the question, dear ones, is raised, what am I to do with one who goes out of his way to be my enemy? One who offends me, who curses me, who persecutes me, who does not repent of his sin against me. 
How am I to treat an enemy? I do not make myself his enemy. He has made himself my enemy. How should I pray for such a one? Since reconciliation is impossible, for he will not repent. Well, we want to begin by saying that it's clear from the Word of God that God does forbid bitterness, God forbids resentment and slander and malice and vengeance against others, even against our enemies. God forget, for, uh, God does not condone, He forbids those particular sins. For we find in God's Word, it says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. Ephesians 4.31 And then in Romans chapter 12, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Never take your own revenge. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. So everything that I say hereafter must be understood in that context. God does not condone bitterness. It is a grave sin, and as we will see, it leads to other sins. But at the same time, when one has an enemy, one who has become your enemy. You cannot strictly, according to the biblical concept of forgiveness that we find in the Word of God, you cannot strictly forgive because you cannot give that person the promise, I will never bring this matter up again because he's not asked you to forgive him. He's not turned from that sin. We must rather have the attitude of God Himself, as we read last Lord's Day in Psalm 86, 5, For Thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive, and abundant in loving kindness, note, to all who call upon Thee. To everyone who calls upon God, God will be gracious and merciful to and forgive them. And so... The problem with allowing yourself to become so wrapped up in your bitterness and your resentment is that when that person, if God should grant that person repentance, and he comes and he says, will you forgive me? You cannot honestly say at that point, if you are wallowing in bitterness and resentment, you cannot honestly say, I will forgive you. You must first then go and make sure your heart is, your own heart is right. But God commands that we do that. So it tells us to keep short accounts with people. Do not allow bitterness to, to spring up in your life. Now in Psalm 139, that we have uh, just read some very strong language with regard to enemies. What about David's strong language of hatred here in Psalm 139 for his adversaries? 
I want to uh, give to you three proposed solutions that uh, have come from Christians as well as non-Christians, uh, liberals, to this particular passage. And then, Lord willing, to lay out before you the, the correct way that we as God's people should understand this passage. But let's look at these particular uh, possible uh, or proposed solutions to this difficult passage. First of all, uh, I've heard, I heard on a radio program one time a few years back, the pastor of one of the largest churches in the United States declare, um, and I'm not exactly quoting him, but I'm quoting him uh, and, uh, to, uh, uh, very closely as to what he said. Uh, David is clearly sinning in his statement here in Psalm 139 and other places in the Psalms where he says such things. David, or David's sin is that of resentment, hatred, and vengeance. And Christians and even saints of the Old Testament are not to have such an attitude. Rather, they are to love their enemies as Jesus taught. And so this particular pastor would put before us the proposed solution that any kind of, of, of statement in this way is always sinful. Always sinful. Whether in the Old or whether in the New Testaments. You've uh, heard this probably said before, and this would be, I think, the, the sentiment of this pastor. God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. And that would probably reflect where this particular pastor was coming from. But I would uh, just, uh, as we're thinking through this proposed solution, ask you to think about, uh, is it only the sin that God casts into hell? Does God punish the sinner? One would expect if he only hated the sin, that he would just punish the sin, but not the sinner. But God does not simply do that. He punishes the sin and the sinner. <clears throat> does God hate his enemies in any sense? Well, let's just very quickly note some passages which uh, uh, would uh, teach that God does, in fact, hate not only sin, but hates the wicked, hates the sinner, hates his enemies. In Psalm 5, verses 4 through 6, Psalm 5, verses 4 through 6, the psalmist says, For thou art not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with thee. The boastful shall not stand before thine eyes. Thou dost hate all who do iniquity. Thou dost hate all who do iniquity. Very clearly, God is not saying that in that passage that he loves or hates the sin but loves the sinner. God hates all who do iniquity. Again, in Psalm 11, verses 4 through 7, 
Psalm 11, verses 4 through 7, we find these words. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone and a burning wind. This shall be the portion of their cup. We find in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19, Solomon says, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. We certainly know in the New Testament, uh, very familiar, familiar with Romans 9.13, where God says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. God absolutely has a holy, righteous hatred for his enemies, for the wicked. The New Testament, the Old Testament as well, teach these truths. And I submit to you, dear ones, that as the children of God, just as you are to mirror in a finite way the infinite love of God, so you are to mirror and reflect in a finite way the infinite hatred of God for sin and the sinner. And we may be confused at times how to do that. But God commands that we as well, not only that God hates the sinner, but we will see that as God's people, we are as well to hate the sinner, as a sinner, as an enemy of God. That person may bear many other relationships to us, a father, a mother, a daughter, a son, and we can love them in that sense. But as an enemy of God, as one who stands before God, condemned because of sin, as a rebel, as one who would seek to usurp the crowned rights of Jesus Christ in his or her own life, we must, with God, have a holy hatred for sin and the sinner. Thus, the first proposed solution that David is sinning we see it's clearly wrong. The Bible does not teach that David was sinning, for he was merely mirroring, reflecting God's own nature. There's a second proposed solution 
as to how to view Psalm 139. And this solution, I will say at the outset, is equally wrong with the first one. And that solution is this, that the Old Testament period was one of law, harshness, and vengeance. Whereas the New Testament period is one of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Therefore, the hatred as expressed by David in Psalm 139 was acceptable in the Old Testament, but it's not acceptable in the New Testament. We follow in the New Testament the law of Christ, whereas David followed the law of Moses. Uh, this, in effect, is the approach, a dispensational approach, following a sharp and drastic discontinuity from the Old Testament into the New Testament. Now, we would recognize that certainly there are discontinuities from the old into the new, but only those discontinuities that God himself has clearly revealed either by precept or by the practice of Christ and the Apostles or by necessary inference. But other than those matters that would fall into those categories, we are to assume continuity between the Old and the New Testament. We find in the book of Hebrews, yes, there are discontinuities. That there is a better priesthood. That there is a better sacrifice than the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. There's a better temple. We are the temple of God, the Church of Jesus Christ. That there are better promises. That there's a better covenant. We find things have moved in that direction. We see that God's people have been redefined from national Israel to an international community under the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there, there are discontinuities that we must continuously be aware of. But when it comes to God's moral nature and what He hates and what He expresses as hating, that cannot be one of those areas of discontinuity. For God is not a God who can change and regards his own moral nature. What he hated in the Old Testament, he hates in the New Testament. If anything, God's hatred for sin, dear ones, comes to be seen most clearly in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. For there on that cursed cross, we find how much God hates sin. For he was willing to put his own son to death and pour out his infinite wrath upon his son. That must be a, an infinite hatred that you and I can't possibly comprehend as to how much God hates sin. we have become the gracious recipients of 
of God's mercy and pouring out his wrath upon his son. The dispensational view of this particular passage and seeing that it relates only to the Old Testament rather than the New would then look at Matthew chapter 5 and we'll come back to Matthew chapter 5 uh, later on but it would basically say that in Matthew 5 we find New Testament ethics for living ethical standards by which we should live our life whereas Psalm 139 re reveals Old Testament ethical standards well this is not true the Lord is not contrasting the law of Moses with some new commandment that he is giving. What he is contrasting is the uh, misunderstanding, the misinterpretation of the rabbinic religious leaders of that time and showing how they misunderstood and showing what the true meaning of the law of God was from the very beginning. We might also say, with regard to this dispensational argument, that the imprecations, the imprecations are sim is simply a term for curses. The imprecations of David in the Old Testament are not unique to the Old Testament, in fact. Peter curses Simon Magus when he says, Your money perish with you, in Acts 8.20. Paul declares to the high priest, God shall smite you, you whitewashed wall, in Acts 23.3. Concerning Alexander, the coppersmith, Paul pronounces, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds, 2 Timothy 4.14. The greatest kinds of woes and, and wrath fall upon those who proclaim a false gospel in Galatians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul says in verses 8 through 9, But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I again say, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. It wasn't good enough to simply say it once. Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes it very clear that one who would fall into that category would be accursed. Let him be accursed. And he had, in that particular setting, the context, certain false teachers in mind who were perverting the gospel. The Apostle Paul says again, in Romans chapter 11 concerning Romans chapter 11 concerning the Jews who had rejected the Lord Jesus Christ and were persecuting him wherever he went he quotes David and he says, And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back always. 
The Lord Jesus Christ himself pronounces curses and woes upon his enemies in Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. Then he began to upbraid the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And he says in verse 24, But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. And in verse 23, or chapter 23 of Matthew, chapter 23 of Matthew, verse 13, the same woes or curses are pronounced upon the scribes and the Pharisees. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Even the martyred saints in heaven shout, how long, O Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Revelation 6.10 Sinless, now perfected in heaven, they cry out, God, how long will you wait to judge those who have shed our blood? Avenge yourself, God. Avenge us as your people against your enemies. And so we see that the dispensational argument doesn't match up. It's not simply an Old Testament ethic and not a New Testament ethic. But we go the other way as well. We see that it's not only in the New Testament that love and forgiveness is taught, but we find the same teaching in the Old Testament. In fact, the very words often that are used in the New Testament are simply quoted from the Old Testament. For example, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus didn't quote that for the very first time. The Lord Jesus inspired his prophet in Leviticus 19.18 to write the same thing. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In Exodus 23, verses 4 through 5, we find again this, this, this concept of love very graphically portrayed and demonstrated in the case laws. Immediately after the law of God is given, where we find if you meet your enemy's ox, not your friend's ox, but your enemy's ox, what are you to do? If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help your enemy with it. Your enemy. 
vengeance is mine comes from Deuteronomy 32, 35, where it teaches that we're not to take personal vengeance upon anyone. That is God's responsibility, and he will meet it out through his ordained authorities. Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 24, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. In other words, don't have some personal glee and excitement over simply seeing your enemy fall. And do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased. That would be a kind of self-vindication that God condemns. And even the same David who penned the words that we find in Psalm 139 about hating God's enemies with a perfect hatred wrote these words in Psalm 35, verses 11 through 16. Psalm 35, verses 11 through 16. This whole psalm is one of imprecation and curses for God to judge and avenge his people, to judge the enemies and avenge his people. But we find in verses 11 through 15, fierce witnesses rise up. They ask me things that I do not know. They reward me evil for good to the sorrow of my soul. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself with fasting, and my prayer would return to my own heart. I paced about as though he were my friend or brother. I bowed down heavily as one who mourns for his mother. But in my adversity they rejoiced and gathered together, attackers gathered against me, and I did not know it. They tore at me and did not cease. With ungodly mockers at feast, they gnashed at me with their teeth. And so David's attitude, as we read through the Psalms, as we read the historical accounts of David, we see that David was not a vindictive man wreaking simply his own personal vindication and anger and wrath against people. In fact, you'll remember on two separate occasions, one of the greatest enemies that David had was King Saul, who hunted him and chased him and pursued him for years. And David could not live any kind of life with his family. No semblance of family life during that time. But simply running, fleeing. And it's two separate occasions he could have taken the life of Saul, who was an enemy of God, but he refused to strike the anointed of the Lord. Here was a man of principle, not a man led by his emotions. Because he was, you remember, the, the, the men who were with David said, kill him! End this mess! 
but he would not do so. And so much for the proposed solution that according to Old Testament ethics, it was okay to hate your enemy, but according to New Te Testament ethics, you are to love your enemy. The ethics of both Testaments are the same in this regard. The third proposed solution is really unthinkable. It's uh, the pro proposition or the proposed solution of the liberal who basically just says, here's just another case where you have a contradiction in the Bible, and thus proving again that the Bible is not without error. For any evangelical Christian, that particular solution simply has to be wiped out. All scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so in the remaining few minutes, let us find the biblical solution to this question, how is the Christian to pray for and treat his and God's enemies? From our text in Psalm 139, if you want to turn there, I'm going to expound uh, from that text very briefly. Psalm 139, Psalm, the uh, verses uh, 19 through 22 primarily. I believe God wants you to know, dear ones, from this particular text, that He hates wickedness in every form. And we should hate wickedness in every form as well. God, the Word of God says, cannot look approvingly upon evil. Habakkuk 1.3 His holy nature is absolutely repulsed by wickedness. And particularly... Uh, that kind of wickedness which raises its fist in God's face. That kind of wickedness in which it is a, a rebel who refuses to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and does whatever is within his power to see that God's kingdom does not grow or extend. God abhors the sinful character of man. Not simply the sin, but the sinful character, the sinful will, the sinful emotions, and the sinful intellect of man. God abhors it. God's kingdom, on the other hand, is absolutely opposed to all evil. Why do we pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Because the kingdoms of this world and that kingdom of Satan is absolutely opposed to everything that God stands for. Everything. And those who are within the kingdom of Satan, whether they realize it or not, are warring and fighting against God. They are rebels. God has established a covenant 
with all men through Adam. And they have walked in the paths of Adam as transgressors and rebels against God. God's kingdom, as I said, is a kingdom of righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. We find furthermore, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans 14, 17. It is a righteous kingdom. Furthermore, the whole idea of love dear ones, does not and cannot mean that we love sin in any form, nor the sinner who commits it. For the characteristics of love are very clearly laid out for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Verses 4 6. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own. Might stop and say that is the very essence of sin, seeking its own rather than God's will, seeking our own will. But love does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Notice, thinks no evil. Love thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And so love, we've, we've misdefined love. If love means that we love our enemies in the sense that we love them as sinners. We do not love them as sinners. We hate them as sinners. We will talk about love in a moment. But we must understand we cannot love them as rebels against God as their character being diametrically opposed to God and His will. <clears throat> you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. We are to think God's thoughts after Him. We are to have His mind. We are to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. And therefore, like David, a man who was after God's own heart, God says that his people must hate sin and they must hate God's enemies. But we must be very, very careful when we talk about this whole concept of hatred because it is so easy for the enemy to take that and to twist it around so that we justify our resentment, our vindictiveness, and our bitterness. And that's sin on our part. That's why David prays, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. 
and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You see, David knew that he, like you and me, is so prone to self-deception, to justifying ourselves with regard to these matters. In Psalm 19, David prays similarly. Verses 12 through 14. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. We cannot, dear ones, be neutral when it comes to these particular matters. When someone is ridiculing and making fun of our God, we cannot be neutral about that. We cannot be neutral in, in our response to sin. There cannot be a pluralistic attitude in any of us because the Word of God teaches the very first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. That does away with all pluralism. That does away with all neutrality. Jesus says, if you don't love me, you're against me. If you don't follow me, you're against me. You cannot serve two masters. You will either love the one and hate the other or love the one and hate the other. The prophet Jehu declared to King Jehoshaphat when Je King Jehoshaphat had formed a wicked alliance with Ahab. Ahab had said, come and help me fight against Ramoth Gilead. Join forces with me so that we can defeat this enemy that has come against us in Israel. And Jehoshaphat gave in to this particular plea on the part of Ahab. And we find these particular words in 2 Chronicles 19.2. Jehu the prophet, speaking on behalf of God, says, 2 Chronicles 19.2, And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him, that is, went out to meet Jehoshaphat, and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Therefore the wrath of the Lord is upon you. The wrath of the Lord is upon you because you have loved the wicked and made alliances with them and joined with them. Solomon clearly teaches, dear ones, in, in Proverbs 29, 27, an unjust man is abominable to the righteous. He's not a nice guy. But as it regards his sin... As it regards him as a sinner, he is abominable to the righteous, an unjust man. 
Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate every evil way. Jesus declared that we cannot serve two masters. And so in Psalm 139, first of all, note that as God hates wickedness in every form, so David emulates God and hates wickedness as well. So should we. Secondly, notice from this particular text, it is not simply the enemies of David. Why are these en the enemies of David? Because they are the enemies of God. He who is the enemy of God has become David's enemy. Notice what he says. That I, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies because they are the enemies of God. What would it mean if God hated his enemies, but I didn't hate his enemies? What would that imply? I must not be united and joined to God. Because my allegiance must be, first and foremost, to my king. Before any other allegiance to anyone else, it must be to my king. And if he declares that so-and-so is an enemy of his, then that person or persons becomes an enemy to me as well. David says in Psalm 119, 158, I behold the treacherous and loathe them because they do not keep thy word. And so David doesn't call upon God to slay his enemies, David's enemies, but to slay God's own enemies. And again, dear ones, this becomes a very, very sensitive area. You must be very careful as to determine who are God's enemies. We may not agree with a lot of Christians, but we cannot call them God's enemies. If they belong to Jesus Christ, we pray for them, that God will, will turn their hearts and help them to see certain truths. But they are not, in the sense that David is here speaking of, God's enemies. Other Reformed brethren or, or evangelical Christians that we wholeheartedly may disagree with on certain issues. I may even believe that they're practicing forms of idolatry. We cannot consider them in this sense that David speaks of as enemies of God. For when David speaks and uses that term, he's talking about the unbeliever, the one who raises his fist up against God 
and would do all within his power to try to thwart the purposes of God. And so we must understand that in the New Testament, in James 4.4, 4, God declares through James, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So if one becomes a friend of the world, one cannot claim, therefore, to be a friend of God and becomes an enemy of God. And so ask yourself, why is so-and-so, why is that person your enemy? Is it because they offended you? Is it because they said something unkind to you? Is it because they have a different theological conviction than you? Is that why they are your enemy? Well, I would submit to you, dear ones, that is not the basis on which one becomes our enemy and therefore God's enemy. The enemies of God are bloodthirsty. Again, the rebels against the Almighty God and His kingdom. <clears throat> Thirdly, from this text, David's hatred like God's hatred, is a holy displeasure and abhorrence for the wickedness in man's thoughts and character, words and deeds. Thus he calls upon God to judge the wickedness of men as God himself has already promised that he would. God has promised in even the third commandment, I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That goes for his children, certainly. He will, he will discipline us, not punish, but discipline us. But with regard to those who bear the wrath of God, the holy displeasure, God will punish them. And so to pray that God will punish the wicked is to pray what God has promised that he will do anyway. This is not a haughty or arrogant attitude that David portrays here, for he sees himself as a sinner, but one who is saved by God's grace. And I would even suggest to you that when you come to understand this particular view, that it will give you a greater burden for evangelism. When you understand that God not only hates sin, but he hates the sinner, that it will give you a greater burden for that person, to see that person come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You'll understand the desperate situation that that person is in. And the last thing from this text that I'd like to point out is simply that David here, I believe, is speaking as a figure and a type of Jesus Christ, the Messianic King. The Messianic King who, according to Psalm 2, goes forth with a rod of iron, crushing the wicked, destroying the wicked. And that we are kings and priests of Jesus Christ. 
that we are to emulate our king as well as he goes forth. These are war psalms of the Prince of Peace who will destroy all of his enemies and who has promised that even in history that he will see his enemies vanquished and that his kingdom will extend from one shore to the other and that all the nations will come to worship him. But he will vanquish his enemies. He will destroy his enemies, dear ones. According to Psalm 86, he will destroy them by either revealing to them their sin, their shame, that they may seek the name of God, or he will confound them and put them to flight. In Psalm 83, 16 through 18, Psalm 83, 16 through 18, fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be confounded and dismayed forever. Yes, let them be put to shame and perish that men may know that you are, that you, whose name alone is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. And so when we pray, let us pray that God will destroy his enemies. God will vanquish his enemies, either by bringing them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ or by putting them to flight, destroying them from the land of the living. And so David's response, dear ones, is exactly the same as that of the martyred saints as we've already mentioned, who certainly cannot be accused of sinning when they pray for God's judgment to fall upon those who have spilt their blood. At the final judgment, can you imagine that the righteous will be, as God casts the wicked into hell, that the righteous will be booing God? That they will in some way be ambivalent as to what God does with the wicked at that particular time? Quite the contrary, when we read Psalm 19, or I'm not, uh, Revelation 19. Revelation 19, we find... How heaven rejoices over what God has done to wicked Babylon. Verse 1, After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honor and power to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia! And her smoke rises up forever and ever. And so they even rejoice that God has cast the harlot Babylon to hell. That will be the disposition. That will be what we will be doing as God judges the wicked. Because we won't be at that particular point in time or in eternity we will not have a clouded vision, a sentimentality that clouds true justice and rejoicing in God's righteousness and His glory in dispensing His judgment to those 
to whom it is deserved. Do you rejoice when you see the righteous actions of the saints? I do. Do you rejoice in your brothers and sisters in Christ? I do. And so likewise, just as I rejoice, just as I commend, just as I approve of the righteous, so I am obligated to not rejoice, to disapprove of, and to hate sinners as sinners. But how do we reconcile this with Matthew chapter 5? How do we reconcile this with the statements that we find Jesus bringing to us concerning loving our enemies? Well, let me just say, that when we properly understand love, we're not talking primarily about some kind of emotional attachment that we have. Some kind of uh, uh, good feeling that we have toward someone. That's not what the biblical concept of love is. A biblical love, as we will see, is a commitment a self-sacrificial commitment to give to another as God's law commands. To do unto others as God commands us to do unto them. That is biblical love as defined by the scripture. Romans 13.10 says, Love is the fulfilling of God's law. Not the neglecting of God's law, not the ignoring of God's law, but the fulfilling of God's law. And so we can legitimately love our neighbor because God commands us to be kind even toward our enemies. But we can't be kind toward our enemies if we're harboring resentment and bitterness. And so true love according to God's word will not speak, think, or perform personal vengeance toward an enemy. You are to hate the evil that's done against God and you are to hate the fact that they are willful sinners against God but you are not to personally repay that evil Rather, you are to leave that to God and to God's magistrates, God's rulers. You are to feed your enemy and clothe your enemy and to give your enemy shelter, for God does the same. Who do you think clothes the wicked of the world? Who do you think provides shelter for the wicked of the world? Who do you think provides food? If God provides food for even the animals in the field, in the forest, as we read in the Psalms, God is the one who provides for the wicked as well, sending his rain and sunshine upon those who are even his rebels. And so God commands you as well to love your enemy 
as he is kind to his enemy. And God will actually use his kindness to show them how rebellious they really were. And God will use the kindness that you show your enemies because he says it's like pouring upon them burning coals. It is the kindness of God that should lead men to repentance. But when men harden their hearts against God and against the kind deeds that God's people show to them, they show, in effect, how righteous God's judgment is upon them. You are also to pray for your enemies, that God will humbly, uh, that God will humbly bring them to bow before Him and to acknowledge Him as the Lord God and as their Savior, to bring them to repentance, to grant them forgiveness. Paul says in Romans chapter 10 that he has a burden for his people to such an extent that he himself would, would be separated from God, accursed to see his people brought to him, and yet we find him praying God's judgments in the same section, praying God's judgments upon them for their rebellion as sinners against God. It seems difficult. We wrestle with, with that kind of tension, and yet God commands us to pray for their salvation as well. As I close, I'd just like to read for you an example of a real-life figure, a Christian, who demonstrated this kind of love, even for uh, enemies whom he warred against and fought against. This is reading from the uh, life and letters of General Robert E. Lee. And listen closely. The minister who wrote the, the uh, biography here uh, says, One day in the autumn of 1869, I saw General Lee standing at his gate talking to a humbly clad man who turned off evidently delighted with his interview just as I came up. After exchanging salutations, the general pleasantly said, pointing to the retreating form, that is one of our old soldiers who is in necessitous circumstances. I took it for granted that it was some veteran confederate and asked to what command he belonged when the general quietly and pleasantly added, he fought on the other side, but we must not remember that against him now. The man afterwards came to my house and said to me in speaking of his interview with General Lee, Sir, he is the noblest man that ever lived. He not only had a kind word for an old soldier who fought against him, but he gave me some money to help me on my way. Dear people of God, 
our union with Jesus Christ is not some fairy tale or fiction. It's a reality. We have been inseparably joined to a holy Savior. And yet we've been inseparably joined to a merciful Savior. The life of that Savior, who is holy and merciful, flows in our veins, as it were. We have partaken of His life and His character. We must therefore grow in our hatred for even the appearance of evil. And we must also grow in our love to show mercy, even to those who deserve it the least. There in the precious Son of God as He hung upon that cross flowed blood that was shed to satisfy the eternal wrath of God against us. How can we not hate sin? And yet flowed the blood, an endless supply of mercy and grace. How can we not love mercy? Yes, God does call us to pray imprecatory psalms, the psalms that we find in the Old Testament. God does call us to pray against His enemies who exalt Himself and, and would try, for example, one illustration that we have been praying this way is re with regard to any who would try to usurp the authority of a parent in raising their children and educating their children in the Christian faith and would take our children out of our homes and not allow us to raise them. Look, that would be, that would be to set oneself up as an enemy of God. Because that is our responsibility before God to give our children a Christian education. We are truly God's children, dear ones. When we hate sin with a perfect godly hatred and when we extend mercy upon those who, like us, do not deserve it, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us your grace that as we consider these matters, very weighty matters, Lord, that we would not sinfully indulge the flesh in making excuses and justifying our behavior. That, God, we would follow your word and the, the people after your own heart and your word who prayed for the vengeance of God to come forth but did not show that vengeance themselves. We do pray, Heavenly Father, that you would give us and show us, Lord, because of your hatred for sin, O oh God, that we can only be saved through the merits of Jesus Christ. And the only reason why we are acceptable before you is because of our Savior. And let us cling to him. Let us rejoice in him. And we pray, Father, with the saints in heaven that, God, you would judge the wicked. That, God, you would bring to naught the plans and schemes of the wicked who would seek to destroy the family and the church. Oh, Father, 
we pray that your enemies would indeed be our enemies and that, God, you would give us that wisdom to know who are your enemies and to pray for their destruction, to pray that they would either come to know you or that, God, you would remove them from the face of the earth. And we pray all these things in Christ's blessed name. Stillwater's Revival Books is now located at PuritanDownloads.com. It's your worldwide online Reformation home for the very best in free and discounted classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, MP3s, and videos. For much more information on the Puritans and Reformers, including the best free and discounted classic and contemporary books, MP3s, digital downloads, and videos, please visit Stillwater's Revival Books at PuritanDownloads.com. Stillwater's Revival Books also publishes the Puritan Hard Drive, the most powerful and practical Christian study tool ever produced. All thanks and glory be to the mercy, grace, and love of the Lord Jesus Christ for this remarkable and wonderful new Christian study tool. The Puritan Hard Drive contains over 12,500 of the best Reformation books, MP3s, and videos ever gathered onto one portable Christian study tool. An extraordinary collection of Puritan, Protestant, Calvinistic, Presbyterian, Covenanter, and Reformed Baptist resources. It's fully upgradable and it's small enough to fit in your pocket. The Puritan hard drive combines an embedded database containing many millions of records with the most amazing and extraordinary custom Christian search and research software ever created. The Puritan hard drive has been produced to assist you in the fascinating and exhilarating spiritual, intellectual, familial, ecclesiastical, and societal adventure that is living the Christian life. It has been specifically designed so that you might more faithfully know, serve, and love the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as to help you to do all you can to bring glory to His great name. If you want to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, then the Puritan hard drive is for you. Visit PuritanDownloads.com today for much more information on the Puritan hard drive and to take advantage of all the free and discounted Reformation and Puritan books, MP3s, and videos that we offer at Stillwater's Revival Books.